This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original series. I'm Norman Lau, and wait, hold on a second. No, I can't, I can't find Mr. Atos. Uh, hi, hi, Norm. It's it's okay. it's Chief. What happened to Mr. Atos? Uh, okay, so he was supposed to beam in about uh, ten, ten minutes ago or so, and uh, yeah. Well, I had a couple of my engineers just doing some routine routine maintenance, but um, one of them uh, went went down into the galley and um, they brought some Romulan oil to share. And um, I think I think Schmedlap spilled it on the um, control panel. So, um, oh no! Yeah, the the Atavacron. <laughs> there's a lot lot of smoke down there, and and it's ugly. I'm sure Mr. Ataz is fine, and even if we can't get him back, we'll get one of the replicas back. But it's it's going to mm. take some work, and, and I'm hopeful that we'll we'll have it fixed before next week's show. I'm really sorry, Commodore. All right, I will leave you in charge of disciplining Mr. Schmedlap, and no more Romulan ale for the crew. Yeah, I I don't know how that got on board. I um, I don't know. It it looked like it was locked up in the wardroom section for the officers, but uh, I don't know anything about that, sir. I thought that was supposed to be illegal. But nevertheless, unfortunately, Mr. Ataz will not be joining us tonight for this fantastic episode that we're going to bring to all of you. But as you heard, the chief is here with us. So, Chief Ken Tripp, how are you, sir? Overall, I'm doing fine, Norm. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to this, this week's show. I think that uh, we came up with a very fun topic to discuss. And I'm looking forward to the back and forth and to really get into the emotion of one thing that's really exciting for me. I love Star Trek. I love the original series. And on top of all that, I really enjoy more than any of it talking about the movies. Now we're in my zone. Mm -hmm. You know, in the last episode of Standard Orbit, that would be 122 when we covered the the entirety of the top 15 TOS episodes at the very end of the show, when you get to the very end, there was a little bit of a challenge that you had in the notes section, and this is following up that challenge, 
And I do believe that you said Nicholas Meyer has come into the forefront when it's um, uh, coming to the 2017 series. And he has offered a great deal of influence in Star Trek, particularly with The Wrath of Khan. And a lot of people believe that The Wrath of Khan is the film that saved Star Trek from 1982 into the future. So you rolled your eyes at that a little bit and you said, well, I'm not completely sure about that. So here we are. And what we're going to talk to all of you today about is the motion picture and its relevance to the entirety of Star Trek moving forward in the cinematic universe and beyond. And did it or did the Wrath of Khan help usher in a brand new era of Star Trek. Is that fair to say? You hit it spot on, sir. Couldn't have said it better myself. That is exactly what we were discussing and the exact reason why I thought this topic would be very germane. When you heard that that Nicholas Meyer was brought on board for the next Star Trek television series that's coming up in 2017, did that immediately to you say... There's a lot of promise here, or what sparked the question that you had in your mind about whether or not the Wrath of Khan was or is the reigning champion in the cinematic universe that saved Star Trek versus what you feel in your heart of hearts is the motion picture? How did that start, and why do you feel so strongly about it? Well, when I first heard that Nicholas Meyer was coming on to the show, I was very happy, like everybody else. Now, don't get me wrong, people. I love Nicholas Meyer. I love The Wrath of Khan. I love all his movies, and I loved reading his books. I like listening to his commentaries. He is a very fascinating individual. He has some very unique ways of looking at things. Uh, he's, he's very direct, and he was a change agent for Star Trek, so I take nothing away from him. However, what I would say is that Star Trek The Motion Picture, it has a very big emotional connection with me. It's what got me into Star Trek. And as I started to kind of expand my friendship and more and more people across the Star Trek fandom, I found a lot of people had a very similar kind of awakening to Star Trek through The Motion Picture. And so when, when we talk about the Wrath of Khan and we talk about its success and its profitability, and it did make a lot of money, I should say it made more profit than the motion picture, but it, it, and it didn't earn as much money. Um, I believe that Star Trek, the motion picture, if it hadn't come along, if it hadn't, fe um, hadn't fed a need that was really brewing by, by, the, by the late 70s, that the Wrath of Khan never would have happened on its own. It wouldn't have been a makeable motion picture. It would have been what I think it was originally designed to be, a made-for-TV movie of the week. And so I believe that Star Trek The Motion Picture is what truly saved the franchise. But there's no doubt that The Wrath of Khan improved it, made it stronger, uh, put a better story together, and launched what we now know of four or five different series, and hundreds and hundreds of hours of Star Trek. You know, that's an interesting point that you bring up. And I remember when you brought this up to me, I wasn't really sure if I was kind of like on board with deliberating between the two movies because I do love the motion picture so much. But as you said in the last episode, and I'll say it again right here, and I think I've said it in the Babel conference, the motion, the Wrath of Khan is my favorite movie of all time. Not just my favorite Star Trek movie, but of all time. And 
There are so many different reasons why, and I think it also changes over time. And so does the motion picture. So these are points in your life when you return to certain cinematic events that help shape who you are. And for us, for Star Trek fans, there are these touchstone moments when we just completely identify with the film for whatever reason and whatever like point in our lives we are. But for me, it will always be the Wrath of Khan. And it, it, it kind of pains me that I'm trying to choose and take sides in this in this in this discussion because I really don't want to. But, you know, as Khan said, you know, I have to kind of like, you know, strengthen my resolve here because you task me, you task <laughs> me and I will have it. You know, I will chase Ken around the moons of Nibia and around the Facebook maelstrom and around the Babel conferences flames before I give this up. So here we are, the motion picture and the Wrath of Khan. Here we are. So emotionally, you said that it connected with you in a certain way. Do you revisit this movie in certain periods of your life and say, yes, it still resonates with me the same way? Or have you found completely different emotional touchstones that keep bringing you back to this simple truth for yourself that the motion picture is, in fact, what saves Star Trek? And if it wasn't for this movie the rest of Star Trek would have never come to fruition. I do visit this movie quite often. And I was saying to you before we went on the air that The Wrath of Khan is probably the movie that I have seen the most times in my life because it came out in the summer of 1982. And, you know, from school, I was in high school. uh, I think I was a sophomore in 1982. And I saw it over and over. When Star Trek The Motion Picture came out December 7th, 1979, it was it was a little bit different. It was wintertime. It was, you know, it's New England and it it was you weren't able to get to the theaters as much and of course I was a bit younger too. But for me, I'll never forget going to see The Motion Picture for the first time. Like I said, I wasn't a big Star Trek movie, but it had that kind of impact on me, Norm. I like a lot of people uh, resonate around the the epic nature of Star Trek, the motion picture. It was, up until 2009, in my opinion, the only true epic motion picture of Star Trek. The rest of the movies were made much more like the TV shows. They had adequate budgets and all, but they weren't epic in scale. And where the movie played, as Mark Leonard said in an interview with him when he watches it, it reminds him of a fine ballet. And that resonated with me. I heard him say that, oh, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago. And I agreed with that. That's how it resonated with me. It was peaceful. I know it was slow. I know for a lot of people it was very boring. But for me, it was beautiful. The music was incredible. The special effects were out of this world. The structure in how the movie was laid out was really, really strong. It was much more a Star Trek story. No real antagonist. And it, it, just, it just hit it out of the park for me. And... I went to see Star Trek The Wrath of Khan hoping to see kind of the same scale as the motion picture. And while I really enjoyed The Wrath of Khan, it grew on me more over time. Star Trek The Motion Picture, I loved it the instant I saw it. The Wrath of Khan, I really liked it. I enjoyed it. And over time, I really grew to love it. And of course, the emotional impact of Spock's death. 
And I think at that time, too, there was no sign that Spock was coming back. So it really was impactful. But at the same time, there was a different feel. It felt more like a TV show made for a movie screen than the motion picture, which really felt like, yeah, they, are, they, they pulled every stop to make this as, as beautiful a film as they could. You know, one of the things that I heard about The Wrath of Khan versus the motion picture is that The Wrath of Khan is probably the best or one of the best sequels of all time. Absolutely. Whereas the, where the sequel actually has improved over the original. And when I think about the motion picture, I think about, yes, there's a grandiose scale to it. They spent a lot of money on it. Uh, was it 45, 46 million dollars on that budget? Uh, they say 35 now, but um, I don't know if they're trying to scale out all the money that was spent the last two and a half years that they were developing phase two, which got pushed into its bottom line. So it's it's hard to get what was truly spent on the movie versus what was spent on the failed TV series and having those actors under contract for so many years. Now, that's a good point, but actually bringing that up from all of the resources from the phase two project and into the motion picture, because the, obviously it was catapulted by the epic success of Star Wars. You know, we have to get this out on the big screen or else we're just going to get swallowed up by this giant tidal wave that Lucas like unleashed all over cinema. Right. So it may have maybe suffered a bit by being a little either undercooked or overcooked or something like that, just because the timing wasn't organic in that movie. In a sense, it was racing the clock against the momentum that the Star Wars universe and that type of epic sci-fi fantasy had that that was thrust upon all over motion picture audiences at the time. So sometimes you don't really get your best work when you're kind of shoved into position, if mm -hmm. you will. Uh, but I think by the time that they were able to realize that and kind of look back at what they were doing with the motion picture, they were able to probably settle in a little bit better figure out what assets were working, figure out where they needed to make some adjustments. And then they started looking at the Wrath of Khan and how are we going to establish the cinematic universe for Star Trek moving forward? Are we going to get the next picture? What choices do we have to make for this picture? And who are we going to have to direct it? Who are we going to have to star in it? Are we going to get our stars back? So there were so many questions probably up in the air. And there were just these great, almost perfect and almost lucky sometimes choices that fell into their lap. Harv Bennett was struggling to find a person who can make his reality happen. One of his associates, a writer or a friend, I can't remember her name, but she was friends with Nicholas Meyer. And by happenstance, they were just barbecuing one day and she said, hey, if you want to be a director, be a director. I have a guy that I know over there at Paramount. He just got put in charge of the Star Trek next motion picture. Why don't you work with him? And he goes, I don't know anything about Star Trek. And here's something that I want to put down for another show. Nicholas Meyer had no idea what Star Trek was. Nope. And he ended up argue, by arguably directing the greatest Star Trek movie of all time. I don't know why J.J. is getting the flame that he gets for not knowing Star Trek the way that Nicholas Meyer didn't know Star Trek, but that's completely another show. So... Hey, can I, uh, let these me, things, you know, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, finish. No, your no, go ahead. Oh, okay. So my question to you was, yeah. I was curious, did you see Star Trek, the motion picture in the movies? Uh, were you old enough to remember it? Well, and then do you remember the first time you saw the wrath of Khan and how you came out? And did you at that time compare the two or were you just so enthralled with the wrath of Khan? I saw the wrath of Khan in the theater. And the funny thing is I was telling Carol this today when I saw Wrath of Khan in the theater, it was, you're right, it was the summer of 1982. I was 10 years old and very formative years. 
10, 11, 12, especially for you sure. know, a young man. And that, that it's a strange thing because you, you equate movies with where you are emotionally at the time. And it was a really strong bonding movie between me and my father. And my father passed away five years ago, almost six years ago this June. And these are those touchstone moments that, that bring me back to why I love this movie originally, because it was just something that I was able to bond with, you know, with my dad. Then you start looking at these movies over time. I didn't see the motion picture in the theater. I was too young. Mm-hmm. That was like five years or six years before. Well, I was only three. 79. 79. 79, mm-hmm. 82. Okay, so three years. I thought it was 78. Never mind. No, I'm thinking of Star Wars 77. So I would have probably not even remembered it as well. You know, I mean, I barely remembered Star Wars in the theater. Mm-hmm. So, um, and if I did remember it even remotely, I wouldn't have remembered it nearly as emotionally or as strongly as The Wrath of Khan because. I think at that time, around 10 years old, is when you start forming your ideal of heroes. And Captain Kirk has always been my hero. And there was Superman at the time. That was 78, I believe. Um, even though I don't remember like as strongly like, plot points, I remember that when I saw him on screen as big as life, you know, that's my ideal of a hero. So Captain Kirk became that ideal. I didn't really even understand like, kind of like the emotional weight of what happened with Spock until later on. Mm-hmm. So as I watch through, as I watch my life go by and kind of remember these moments and look back on how I remember Star Trek two, what I'm coming away from with it now is that it's this great story about almost a midlife crisis in a way. <laughs> well, it certainly was. Yeah. You know, and as I'm approaching the age that Kirk was, I believe it was supposed to have been 49 or 50. Um, at that time in his career and in his life, I'm starting to appreciate the questions that are being asked about who you are and what you're supposed to be and the choices that you make that are taking you away from who you are. There's this great cyclical nature in Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan, that I didn't quite feel that was in the motion picture. I think the motion picture has this great philosophy behind it, but it feels like this philosophy of the cage versus what you saw, say, in where no one has gone before or where no man has gone before and Balance of Terror. Because those are the two episodes that I kind of put together emotionally that make me feel the way that The Wrath of Khan makes me feel. So sure, that's kind of like where I am. I mean, how do you emotionally equate the motion picture to the original series? It, to me, it, it aligns very well. And, and you know, it, it's interesting, and that's why I was trying to capture what your age was, because I think that that has an impact, too. Because when you, when you talk to a lot of people that are a lot younger than us, then the motion picture to them is just this boring, very long movie with people staring out the, uh, the view screen at a lot of, at the time, were incredible patterns, but today could be replicated, I guess, with somewhat of an ease. So... For me, emotionally, like I said, Star Trek, the motion picture got me into Star Trek, and that had an incredible impact on my life in so many different ways. So that alone, you know, is what is what keeps the draw there. As far as The Wrath of Khan, the story was incredible. It took a lot of risks. It, um, I think it, it reflected more of what we were like as, as people than, than the Gene Roddenberry vision, uh, you know, quite a bit. 
It introduced new characters, and it took us for a ride. It took us for a three-movie ride that was a lot of fun. And uh, it was deep, and, and that's why I say it, 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 it definitely was a great movie. The difference really comes back to scale. And I just remember watching Star Trek The Motion Picture and that flyby around the Enterprise in the big screen and getting sucked all in and with this beautiful ship and this beautiful music and a captain looking at his ship and the structure that went on within the Enterprise. I will say this, that... Um, you know, Nicholas Meyer was much more about the story, and maybe because of my thought processes, processes and everything, and Star Trek The Motion Picture, everybody's position on the ship was relevant. Uh, they all had an assigned duty. You just didn't have arbitrary people sitting in arbitrary seats doing things. And that was that was part of it. Or when you're down in the engine room, uh, f- during it's the same engine room in both in both movies, but... They took painstaking care to put children standing down the, um, the, the, the main energy, I don't know what it was, fuel or whatnot, but antimatter flow that went down to the back of the engine. You got this incredible appreciation for scale because the further along you viewed it, the people were getting smaller and it just looked huge. All of those little things that you pay attention to as a Star Trek fan or somebody that just really, really loves movies, loves what they did uh, cinematically, artfully with the motion picture. Anybody who really enjoys a great story and isn't so much on the technical side uh, would love The Wrath of Khan. And, And that's why I love both movies for different reasons. But I'll tell you, when I first saw The Wrath of Khan, it was funny. I was watching the movie, I was getting into it, but because the scale and epic nature, it was made a lot cheaper than the motion picture, and it was obvious it was done a lot cheaper than the motion picture. It just wasn't to the same scale, and that happens, and it had to be in order for it to continue, and that's Star Trek alone, right? It was always the stories over the cheesy special effects, and we all get that, but I had a tough time because I wanted my cake and I wanted to eat it too. I still (laughs) wanted to have a great story and an epic movie. And I wish to God they could have done that for for the motion picture, that they could have hit in both, uh, a home run in both, so that we could have had just a little bit more um, of of that, that kind of story element instead of, you know, hundreds of thousands of blinking lights and stuff that didn't make any sense. And we're so trekky. We like to know why things work and how they work. And you can tell that Nicholas Meyer, he didn't care at all. You know, he used <laughs> he used sets that you saw from five or six different sci-fi movies, including Airplane and Airplane Two, with the whirling lasers and all. <laughs> it just it took me out of it to a degree. But I can't argue that the story of the Wrath of Khan was fantastic, and the Battle of the Mutara Nebula was pretty cool. But the ship element stuff, he couldn't match what they did in the in, in the motion picture. Not even close. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting thing to say because I don't think that that's where I think these two movies really diverge. It's um, you're right. It, it's tough that that we don't have both of those elements combined because the motion picture is a great spectacle. Yep. But I think this, the Wrath of Khan is a better story. Yes. The motion the motion picture has grandiose elements in it. I mean, I can watch that 15 to 16 minute segment of Kirk just falling in love with the Enterprise all over again, because that's supposed to be us. We haven't seen this ship in 
Well, since 1969, in a way. I mean, there was the animated series, but that's an animated ship. So 10 years, we haven't seen the Enterprise. And it's not the Enterprise that we remember. It's the refit Enterprise. So Robert Wise did a really smart job of letting us fall in love with every curve, every rivet, every light, every detail, every angle, so that you, as the Star Trek fan that has returned, knows that this is still the ship that you fell in love with in the first place. And it's Kirk's ship. It's not another enterprise. You know, it's not another ship. It is the enterprise. It's just been refit. So welcome back, audience, to Star Trek, is what he was saying. It was almost a love letter inside this very movie. And, of course, you have these great sweeping special effects, panoramic shots of V'ger, where, unfortunately, and I think really unjustly, people throw the motionless picture title on top of those sequences because... What you're doing is you're getting that really nice slow burn appreciation for exactly what V'ger has done post being launched as the Voyager probe. Because the Voyager probe was about the size of a tin can. And now look what it's become because of all the information and all the species and every single amount of data it's collected and fused to itself. That's exactly the point of why you're supposed to enjoy the grandness of this specific special effect and set, because that's the that's what V'ger did. V'ger was almost it was like a floating galaxy into and of itself, and and Spock being able to go in there and just. It's funny. I'm supposed to be actually arguing the other side of the fence, but I can't because the motion picture is amazing, right? Hey, th- like I said, they're they're both wonderful movies. I, I don't I don't think there's a winner in this. I just think that it's uh, it it's interesting the difference and. I believe, like you said before, most people would, would, would go with the Wrath of the Khan, especially the, the younger types. But uh, anyway, you were on a roll. Keep rolling. Well, the thing is, is that you have this aspect of you have this approach. And, and Robert Wise is a fantastic director. You know, I loved him on Sound of Music and West Side Story. I mean, he is a storyteller. He tells a very, very well-constructed story. But what Nicholas Meyer did in contrast to that was he, he because he had a smaller budget and because he had very limited resources... He had to shrink everything down to basically what was like a two or three set play. You had the bridge of the Enterprise, you had the bridge of the Reliant, and you had regular one, or the Space Lab at regular one. And you had just these very powerful and very connective tissue moments between certain characters that just allowed you to understand the scale between the people versus the scale between the environments. And that's that's pretty much the way I see the motion picture in The Wrath of Khan because it's about the Wrath of Khan for me is just about the growth and understanding of the arc of oneself as opposed to the understanding of this great and grandiose being. It's that cerebral aspect of Star Trek that goes closer to Roddenberry in the motion picture, whereas I think that the storytelling really takes a radical change and modernizes it for a different audience. I don't really subscribe to the fact that The Wrath of Khan is the one that changed Star Trek because it had more action in it. And they always attribute action to Wrath of Khan, but if you really look at that movie, almost 40, 42, 43 minutes into the movie, nothing really happens in terms of action. Not a real phaser's been fired in that sense, aside from the Kobayashi Maru scenario. So that's not really a huge action, uh, intense first opening of the movie. So... uh, it's it's a different way of, of of looking at it. I think that nostalgia has kind of um, 
grew its legend over time as being the action-oriented movie. Sure, it has the great end sequence, but overall, I think that you have really great different philosophical approaches to both of these stories. But I think we should really take a look now at some of the more uh, intricate parts in the character developments. And Ken, how did you feel about Kirk in the motion picture versus Kirk in the Wrath of Khan? Because this is our central figure, our hero figure. And I think that his journey in both movies is what kind of identifies why one movie is one way and obviously why one movie is another way. You're right in a sense, but I think a lot of things that get missed, a lot of times it gets missed between the two movies is that Kirk was humbled in both. One was due to age and one was because he was sitting behind a desk and and out of practice, right? Uh, Kirk took command of the Enterprise under less than, I would say, noble circumstances in the motion picture. He took over because he wanted to take over. He wanted to get back out into space. He used that emergency to get there. He didn't do his research and take enough to realize how much the Enterprise had changed in its two and a half years in, in dry dock. And, you know, I mean, it was, I guess there was probably one piece of hull plating somewhere towards the stern was probably the only thing that was the same between the old and the new ship. And, you know, him forcing the ship to get into warp speed, um, making the wrong the wrong choice in weapon systems to destroy the asteroid. If if you look at it, he they, they, they played him coming in as arrogant, and then he was humbled quite a bit. And then, you know, he he um, he acted kind of erratically, uh, but yet his experience allowed him to to turn it around. And if you look at the Wrath of Khan, it was it was the aging piece of it, the the feeling sorry for himself, and again being humbled. He um, he he didn't follow the regulations the way he should have. Uh, normal protocols weren't set, and he got a lot of people killed, and and he learned a lot from that too. So in both in both movies he was humbled and in both movies he triumphed at the end except in the wrath of khan his arrogance and never really having to face death and having to deal with spock's death is was the game changer i mean that was the emotional game changer and as we were saying earlier i think before we went on the air if if spock didn't come back and i'm not saying that's the right move but if he did not come back then I think the Wrath of Khan would be even more powerful in the minds of Star Trek fans because of Spock's death and because we lost a great character and the way it was done so powerfully. And to come back one movie later and, and bring him back, I don't know if that was right or wrong because we all love Spock and, and he's brought us much more positive than negative. But from an emotional point of view, like I said, I, I know when I saw The Wrath of Khan, I was pretty sad and pretty down at Spock's death, but optimistic that, that Star Trek would continue. And unfortunately, that kind of thing where, where you bring somebody back um, can dilute its impact. And it did, because you can't watch The Wrath of Khan anymore. You can get sucked into that scene, but the second the movie's over, you're back and you go, oh, yeah, he's still around. You know, he made several more movies. So um, I don't know. That, that's that's how I see the two Kirks. One, you know, a little out of experience, a little out of his depth, takes him a while to catch up. He catches up, saves the day. The other one, um, remorseful, getting old, and 
coming around and at the same time, you know, dealing with something that he probably felt he never would and, and seeing one of his closest friends uh, die because of the decisions he made. I think that Spock's death is obviously the tipping point for me in bet- between both movies when it comes to how Kirk develops because I always felt that in the motion picture, William Shatner was great in both movies and he does come kind of sweeping into the motion picture. It's like, well, I'm Captain, I mean, well, I'm Admiral Kirk now. I know the ship. Right. I know what I'm doing. And if I don't know what I'm doing, you're going to have to believe me anyway because I can order you to believe that I know what I'm doing. You know, but you know what I mean? I'm not saying that he did that. I know what you mean. But there's that whole thing where where Bones says, you're pushing, Jim. You're pushing. Your people know how to do their jobs. And Decker, and this is um, William Decker, not Matt Decker. It's William Decker, said that, I, I'm sorry, sir, but this is a completely different enterprise. You know, this is a completely different ship. You don't know this enterprise anymore. And something struck me when that happened. It almost took the strength a little out of my hero character. It's like the hero doesn't lose his that level of influence uh, in, a, in a picture for me and still retain himself as being the hero. When I saw him in The Wrath of Khan, you can tell from the very beginning that he wasn't that same level of Kirk that he was in the motion picture. He doesn't, his, his chest wasn't nearly as puffed up because every single time you interacted with him, he was, he was under this malaise. You know, it's like, mm, I'm going home. Oh, thanks for, my, thanks for my birthday gift, Bones. You know, he always felt like, what, what am I doing? You know, what, he doesn't know what he wants out of life anymore, which is what Bones asked him. It's like, what do you, you know, get back your command. You know, what, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know, you, right. Every single thing about the Wrath of Khan is you are wasting everything if you don't just face the fact that you're supposed to do the one thing in your life that you're just meant to do. In the, in the motion picture, he knew that he's supposed to do that. And that arrogance kind of cost him uh, almost dearly uh, in many ways, just either losing the ship or losing the respect of his people. Um, right, the wormhole tear could have ended things very badly. He had to learn, and it, it kind of resolved itself very quickly. But in The Wrath of Khan, it resolved itself with Spock's death, and it didn't. it wasn't a clean resolution. I mean, even in the end where... And I wanted to make this a point. At the very beginning of the movie, he said, galloping across the cosmos is a game for the young. Right. And then during that whole course of the movie, he at, in, in the pit of the Genesis cave, he's like, I feel old and I feel worn out. And then at the very end of the movie, after Spock's death, he goes, I feel young again because he was back where he was supposed to be. That's not the Kirk that I felt at the end of the motion picture, but that's the Kirk that some type of heroic resolution with a sense of loss at the end of the wrath of Khan. So in that sense, I always felt that Kirk was a little bit more rounded as a character at the end of wrath of Khan. Yeah, you know he, what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I agree with that. He, he definitely grew a lot at the end of the motion picture. It was like the end of a typical decent episode uh, from the TV series. He was back in the center seat. The crew was back together and we're off to another adventure. And, that's that's what happened. So I, I agree with you. This the the end of um, Wrath of Khan, which 
you know, it was funny because it was played very differently, wasn't it, at the beginning of Star Trek Three? So he felt young and reinvigorated at the end of the movie, but apparently a few hours later, as they're heading towards space dock, he was pretty forlorn again, which I imagine would be absolutely normal. So uh, he, he kind of swung uh, again. So I um, I agree with you, though. There, there that, that was probably the... the the larger element. And like I said, I, I can't argue the story of the Wrath of Khan being a better story. You're right, it was. And it was not a battle story. It was a growth mm-hmm. story. It was a a large development in the richness of the character story. All of them, except for Sulu, I think, had many more parts, many more lines, and they felt much more part of the team. Where in the motion picture was very much like a TV episode. It was it was the big three. That's a great point. I totally agree. And there's nothing wrong with that because Star Trek was always built on the big three. Mm -hmm. But it's always nice to have a little bit more character development, especially, I mean, Chekhov, obviously, in The Wrath of Khan, had a far bigger role to play than he probably ever did in any of of the episodes or in the motion picture. Spock, there have been, there have been discussions about that the motion picture was more of Spock's development story. Sure than uh, Kirk's development story. And I, I totally agree with that. You see Spock go through a variety of changes in the motion picture, more so than I think he did. I think the changes in the motion picture actually brought about the Spock that we see in The Wrath of Khan. What do you think about that? Oh, I agree. I definitely agree. I think that the um, that Leonard Nimoy in the motion picture did did a brilliant job. Uh, it is It is hard to act with no emotion to the level that he was. This was well beyond the TV show. He was completely stolid. He, 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 had, he had nothing going. And to go from that to actually being tears a couple of times towards the end of the movie and some of the lines that he had were, were just great. You know, V'ger being a child or, you know, this, this simple grip when he grabs his hand, no meeting, no hope. You know, it, it, it seeks its answers, but like so many of us, it does not know this does not know what. And there was a lot of philosophical things, I think, that probably hit me, too, because I was 13 years old. And, you know, you're trying to figure out, I mean, throughout all our lives, we're trying to figure out its meanings and so forth. That that never changes. But it does in scale and scope and impact. And I think as a, as a young teenager, those are the things that, that really do. You know, you're, you are questioning everything because you're, you're at a mental state where you're beginning to understand that um, um, life isn't what you thought it was and, and, and you're trying to get your arms around things. So I think that's probably another reason why, why it impacted me uh, that way and why I'm still drawn to it. You know, I remember reading an article that Spock, Spock was always kind of like this allegorical character of the rebellion of the the youth of the time where he doesn't really know which world he fits into. It's not that he's going out there and being a rebel. It's just that he is somewhat of an outsider. He always feels a little bit on the outside looking in. And I think that's the great thing about his journey in the motion picture. Whereas Kirk has this journey of trying to figure out and center himself in Wrath of Khan, Spock tries to do that in the motion picture. He literally sacrifices the final phase of the Kolinar process that would, that would bring him total acceptance into the Vulcan culture and purge himself of all emotion. But the clarion call of an otherworldly power has connected with him so deeply, he has to go out and find the source of that power. And in doing so, 
even if he reunites himself with the cast and the crew of the Enterprise, it's not the Spock that we remembered 10 years ago. He was incredibly cold and almost robotic in a sense. He was still probably 95% there at being true Vulcan. But it was that connection with V'ger that almost rewired him in a way that gave him that sense of clarity and purpose and made him understand, you're right, and I'm not going to requote what you said because you did it so brilliantly, but he just made him understand the dimensions of everything as opposed to just logic. I remember in, um, I'm going to jump out of these two movies, but it's, it's what Spock said to Valeris in Six. It's like that logic is the beginning of wisdom, not the end. Um, that's, that's kind of like how I felt here. It's like he touched wisdom. Uh, with all of the information that V'ger had at, at his disposal and when they when he might, tried to mind meld with V'ger. So in the end, you we received the Spock that I think was the Spock we were trying to see um, introduced to us uh, at the end or what we anticipated to see uh, 10 years later and not this very standoffish character who is sole purpose was trying to get the V'ger. You know, he didn't really interact with Kirk. He didn't interact with Bones at all. He's like, you know, when um when when Bones like saw Spock for the first time, there was there was no spark there. There wasn't that energy that we've seen before. And I think that kind of set people a little bit um aside for a second. We're like, what this is supposed to be this is Spock and Kirk and Bones. You know, where's that energy? Right. But it wasn't quite there. But it was there. Um, in the Wrath of Khan, especially in the Genesis scene, where <laughs> when when this is one of my favorite scenes, of the movie when Bones is saying like, "Watch out, here comes Genesis. We're going to do it for you in six minutes," and Spock just sits back there. It's like, really, Doctor McCoy, you really have to govern your passions. That whole green-blooded and human back and forth, and Kirk's looking at both of them, kind of rolling his eyes. That's the secret of Star Trek. They did have it in the motion picture, but not quite there. So I like seeing the the contrast of they enhanced on it even more from one movie to the other. Um, but there's, you know, there's, there's Kirk. We talked about Chekhov a little bit. We talked about Spocks. What did you think about Bones in both movies? I thought he was great I, in I felt both. That, yeah, yeah, I, I felt like fun. DeForest was, it's just DeForest, right? Yeah, he had, you know, I, I could argue that uh, in the motion picture, because everybody was so serious, uh, especially at the beginning, that he added, you know, all the, all the kind of funny quips you know, you know, especially with uh, when they're when they were breaking out of the uh, the wormhole, you know, and and Chekhov says, oh. "No casualties report the doctor." Wrong, Mister Chekhov. <laughs> there are casualties. My wits. Frightened out of the captain, <laughs> sir. And and just he just had that way. But you know, the engineers love to change things, and um, he he really, I thought, um, was the element in the motion picture that made the movie a lot better. And in the Wrath of Khan, he picked up right where he left off, and it would have been an interesting dynamic if you think about it. If um, if the Enterprise truly was going to be captained by Spock and no Kirk. That would have been a heck of a ship to be on, because uh, there, there, there would have to be a slightly uh, stronger degree of reverence for for the commanding officer, you would think. So, uh, oh, yeah, I thought he did he did a great job in both, and he he had his lines. He um, he reminded me more of the uh, the TV series a little bit with his arguments with Spock and the Wrath of Khan, but then in just general conversation and being that counselor for Kirk, he was mm-hmm. much stronger in the motion picture. 
Yeah, he had a couple good moments in The Wrath of Khan, but I really loved it when he came on screen. And sometimes, and I'm saying this in a really good and loving way, sometimes some things can't be unseen, but there is nothing cooler than Disco Bones, I'm telling you. Oh, no, no. Disco, you know, yeah. when he beamed on in that that bushy beard of his and that giant gold medallion. I mean, I know it's we're supposed to be in the 23rd century somewhere, but that was squarely 1970-something. Oh, for yeah, sure. it was perfect. Yep, Disco Bones, that's absolutely <laughs> well, right. Well, a man swore he'd never return to Starfleet. Just a moment, Captain, sir. I'll explain what happened. Your revered Admiral Nagura invoked a little-known, seldom-used reserve activation clause. In simpler language, Captain, they drafted me. They didn't. This was your idea. This was your idea, wasn't it? Bones is a thing out there. Why is any object we don't understand always called a thing? Headed this way. I need you. But it's you're right. Uh, Bones came in in both movies, and he really played the role as good as he did in the original series, if not probably even a little bit better with a little bit age and wisdom. But he was the counselor. He's always been the counselor. He's always been almost a foil for Spock and a counselor, but he's always been this conscience, this great abstract and sometimes obtuse way of looking at things for Kirk because Kirk can't get out of his own head sometimes. McCoy's just a cold country doctor. He just calls it like he sees it. He does. And I love some, that. Yeah, and sometimes it's over the top. But in, in these two movies, I thought he was he was spot on with his his arguments and his uh and his counsel. And and just, you know, just the way you know, he's he's telling the captain to back off in the motion picture and let people do their jobs, as you noted before. The way he did it, it was subtle. It wasn't embarrassing to the captain. He just was trying to get in his ear and, and give him some advice, which was ignored, and then bad things happened. So, Or even tagging <laughs> along when, uh, when when Kirk was going to discipline Decker for countermanding his order. And, you know, he gave Kirk his analysis, too, which I thought was also pretty cool. So, yeah, I, I, I don't have any problems with, with McCoy, and I thought the rest of the, the cast— did well. It was, you know, the motion picture for me was, it was fun because it was, it was seeing all your old friends again. And that, uh, Mm -hmm. that's a big deal. Boy, that's a real big deal. And that was the other piece of it, I think. It was only three years really removed from the motion picture when the Wrath of Khan came up. And it was amazing in those three years, how much their appearances had changed. It it was Mm -hmm. a big difference. And um, not sure why. I liked the Wrath of Khan uniforms a lot better. Um, they, they, those were pretty cool. Took a little bit of getting used to because when you saw the motion picture, and if you were a Star Trek fan, you understood the rank structure. You understood why the uniforms looked the way they did. Um, but when they switched to to the Wrath of Khan, uh, you had to learn all these different insignia and stuff all over again. But other than that, it was uh, it was really cool. I think the um, the aesthetics in Star Trek the motion picture were much much better. But the uniforms in the Wrath of Khan, um, those are mine and probably most people's favorite uniforms. Well, that's the, let's talk about that a little bit more because one of the things that really separates these films, probably more so than anything else, is the, the visual aesthetic of both movies, the production value. Right. Because you're right, it's, there's, there's no way of being able to disprove that they spent a greater budget and put far more investment into the motion picture because of all of the resources that they had that they developed for phase two, and then more money to help develop it for a feature film scale. 
So you had the miniatures, then you had all the different set pieces, then you had a really interesting palette. The palette in this movie is probably the most striking between the two because you're dealing with a lot more lighter blues, grays, a lot more of this kind of a slate palette. It had a very clean and sterile kind of look. Even the bridge itself was just, everything was brighter and everything was a little homogenized uh, in, in a certain way so that certain things did stand out. You know, there was there was a very... Um, let's say it's not, it wouldn't be colored palette neutral. I'm a designer. So I'm talking about designer things. Aaron Harvey. I want, I want to talk to you about this. Cause I think that, you know, you as a designer and our designer for Trek FM, uh, probably appreciate all of these design aesthetics. But when you, when you contrast that type of look with the wrath of Khan, the wrath of Khan is very earthy and mahogany and, uh, maroon and woody and just very antiquated. And I think that Nicholas Meyer really made a specific design direction for that because, I do believe it was the first time in any of these movies or even maybe in the original series that you actually saw a 20th century book, an antique, the glasses. There were a lot of things that Nicholas Meyer wanted to say, you know what, as people of this century, we collect antiques. Why wouldn't they collect antiques back then or, 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 or in the future? Because they're still people. They still do real things like we do real things. Not everything has to be an Elcar screen. Not everything has to be under glass or a fingerprint button or a retinal scanner. Things still have to have tangibility. It 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 um, it attaches us to what it is to be human. It it breaches that generational gap of the centuries. It allows us to connect with our past. And I think that's that's the one thing in the motion picture that I don't get a sense of that we're still trying to retain that connection to humanity as opposed to what they do in the Wrath of Khan. But that was a very specific thing that Nicholas Meyer wanted to do. So how did you feel about those two design aesthetics? And do you think that they went so far in the Wrath of Khan to make a severe visual dividing point for the audience to make us say, hey, you know what? We're going in a completely different direction and we hope that you go with us this way as opposed to the motion picture. Yeah, I think so. I think that was that was Nicholas Meyer's intent was to to bring it down and ground uh, the Wrath of Khan a little bit. He didn't just do it aesthetically, too. He did it with the mindset of the people. The, he wasn't following Gene Roddenberry's vision uh, in terms of, you know, that, that that everybody's perfect and there's no conflict and there's no prejudice. And, um, you know, he just he just went in a different direction, which, which brought a lot of um, angst uh, against uh, Roddenberry. He, he didn't necessarily like a lot of what was going on in the Wrath of Khan. Uh, nowhere near as much as when he did the Undiscovered Country. That was a whole different realm, um, which I think put Roddenberry over the edge. But I think a part of it was necessary too, because it does make it more realistic. I just think though, if you look at where we're going already towards eBooks and things like this, and we have the benefit of time on our hands, books are going to be difficult to find in three or four hundred years. It's just the way it's going to be. And when you watch either movie today. Um, the motion picture still, other than Disco Bones, okay, still, <laughs> you, it, it still plays well. It, it doesn't have a dated look. Its special effects were so expensive and so good, and none of it computer-generated still plays magnificently. It's a gorgeous film today. The Wrath of Khan, outside the... Um, the recaptured shots that they use from the from the motion picture, which was pretty much all of them of the Enterprise for the first half of the movie, 
um, doesn't play quite as well. It, it doesn't feel as real. The ship to me doesn't feel as functional or real or appreciated in the Wrath of Khan like it does the motion picture. It's it's just gone in a different direction. I, I like the um, you know the, kind of the, the running up the gallows and, and clearing the way for the torpedoes and all that stuff, but. It still, to this day, it doesn't look, I mean, that torpedo room, that whole, it, it doesn't look anything like um, uh, like a modern futuristic battle zone or a, or a, um, a torpedo launcher to me. I mean, they, they did their best. It was kind of cool, and it, it gave the crew something to do. I love them pulling up the grates and all that stuff. It, it added a lot to the flair and the action, which I understand what he was trying to do. And that's what I mean. He was trying to pull it back into something that we could all identify in this timeline rather than using our imaginations a little bit more and really thinking, you know, um, beyond. See what I did there? In Star Trek, mm-hmm. the motion picture. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's kind of how I see the difference. Now, I like a lot of what Nicholas Meyer does. I really do. And I like a lot of what Robert Wise did. Um, and it's funny, too, because I come full circle. So when, when you, by the time you get to the next generation, so that, that show had a lot of the feel of what Roddenberry was trying to do in the motion picture. However, I don't think he was as successful at it in the next generation. The uniforms were not functional. They're, or, you know, the first couple seasons, they were awful. And, um, and you could say the same thing about the motion picture. The uniforms weren't functional. You needed somebody to zip them up in the back, I guess, or you pull them up over your head. In the, you know, in, in the Wrath of Khan, they had uniforms where they when they when they went on an away team mission, and they had pockets, and there are things there that that made a lot of sense. That in the motion picture, there wasn't a lot of functionality, but the shipboard functionality, it was. It was perfectly done, I think, in the motion picture. It's the same bridge in both, but the way Robert Wise did it versus the way Nicholas Meyer did it, I liked it a lot better. It was just much cleaner. Um, you know, you didn't have 20th century fire extinguishers on the wall. You could have added something, right. I suppose, but, you know, he didn't make it modern. And, and there were just all these different lights and things going on, and it looked, it looked... It didn't look real to me. Every everything in the motion picture, I bet you if you if you outline to the detail of how they did it, they could tell you what screen was being used for what and what its purpose was and how it all worked. You know, even looking at the Asonic sonar and stuff like that. Then you you looked at the Wrath of Khan and you know, you'd have uh well, I don't want to use my crewman's name, so I have to think of something else. But I was gonna say like a Schmedlap or an Umpty Scratch was sitting in this chair before, and now he's over here, and now he's over there. The weapons console doesn't matter until Chekhov comes back aboard. Um Christy Alley, you know, she's a lieutenant coming out of the academy. Why she's a lieutenant, that makes not no sense in an ensign. But she sits all over the place and sometimes it's just that kind of stuff, just it, the focus was on the story, not the structure. That's fine. I'm a guy who likes both. And so for 99% of the audience, they probably wouldn't be bothered by the little things that I'm bothered with. <laughs> but I love attention to details like that, especially when you're operating a ship. You know, and this was before I was in the Navy for any one of those two movies. But I love that. I love that specific attention to detail. It uh, it makes it feel very real, and I can really escape into that. 
No, that's, I, I love that when you bring that kind of like focus on these, because you're right. There, there are people out there that look the way that you look at these films. And it's not like they are going to lose any appreciation of it at all. It's just that I think if you hit those other touchstones, it just makes it a little bit more tangible and it just can keeps you in the immersion. Sure. And it doesn't lose you. And that's, it's always a difficult thing when you see that part in a movie that takes you out of the immersion, because then all of a sudden you've lost the illusion of why you're there and it's hard to get back in. So I completely understand that. But I mean, don't you, don't you love it when Sulu, when he's making the ship go forward, he's using that little thruster shift to me. It was like, okay, now we know how they do it. And now we know how he control it. It just seemed to be so cool. And it, it disappeared until they made the new movies. Now the new movies, they just push it all the way forward. So I don't know how fast they're going. But anyway, <laughs> it's, it's like I said, those things were, were really cool. Or even when the ship was leaving dry dock, you saw the lights dim, the different mm-hmm. consoles change, just like they do in the fleet. It's the same exact thing. You know, you adjust the, um, the lighting and everything for, for what you're doing. You know, even when you're in, in uh, battle stations and all that stuff, everything is red light or, and everything switches. And those were the things that, um, I think it got bright red in the Wrath of Khan, but little things. But that's it for me. I'll, I'll get off my, my, my tirade. <laughs> it's, it, those were the things that had me take time to adjust to the Wrath of Khan. And eventually I learned to get over all that and still love it for what it was. But when we're nitpicking between the two movies, it just gives me something to, uh, to, to discuss. And I know there's probably a few people, not very many, who see it that way. By the way, folks, this really isn't a podcast. I actually charge 150 an hour just to make sure you can get your catharsis off your chest. So this is actually a session for Ken that we're just recording. And um, my services as psychological advisor are open to everyone on the Babel Conference, by the way. So we're making, we're breakthrough, we're having a breakthrough moment right, right here, right, Ken? We are, are, we are, yes, yes. I, okay. <laughs> thank you for putting that little uh, can out there so I could put the nickel in it just like Lucy and, and feel better now. It's not Commodore, it's Counselor, actually. It's not, <laughs> I changed my title. No, 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 stick, stick to Commodore. I don't, I don't want to envision you as a counselor. Yeah, stick to my day job, is that what you're saying? <laughs> So we have to address the big elephant in the room between these two movies. And it's obvious that uh, in, in motion pictures or in any kind of narrative, sometimes the quote unquote villain is what drives the narrative and drives your heroes to make certain choices or to act in a certain way. I think the real big difference between these two movies, again, um, probably more than anything else, is that in the motion picture, there isn't a villain per se. Right. There is... Th- what would you call it, Ken? Well, I mean, what would you call Vidri? It would, it would just be an, not even an adversary. It's just, it, it just is. It's a mystery, right? That's really what it is. You're, 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 you're dragged around until the very, very end. And I don't know of anybody who saw the movie start to finish uh, and, didn't, and, and was able to figure out what exactly was driving the ship towards Earth. So in that, case, in, in that sense, there was, there was, you know, you can go to movies nowadays and you're pretty good at figuring out the plots probably within the first five to 10 minutes. And they might have a got you in there, but not this one. This one, this one had everybody. Uh, and I know a lot of people say, oh, it's, it's a repeat of, of Nomad and all that to a degree it was. There's no doubt about that, but still. Well, certain elements are, but not overall really. No, no, no. You but know, I'm just saying, you know, they, they kind of pulled that in, but I just mean that, uh, it was it was truly a mystery. You just did not know or understand its intentions or why. And everybody's trying to figure it out. And instead of 
trying to figure out ways to blow it up. They were trying to figure out what makes it work. And, you know, I thought, um, I thought it was very well done from that because I remember when they first showed it and they showed that thing, the, the actual Voyager 6, and you're looking at it and you're going, what, what exactly is that? You know, and uh, I, I guess with all their, um, what was it, Gene Hackman and Superman 2, with all their accumulated technology, they couldn't figure out how to you use, know, the use the doorknob. In this case, they couldn't <laughs> figure out how to wipe off the grease. But still, it was, um, it was still a, a very, uh, I thought, very magnificent surprise. I mean, that set was gorgeous, too. But uh, for a lot of people, because it wasn't a villain and things didn't go boom, obviously it evolved, it didn't go boom, uh, that, that definitely set some people back too. Yeah, it's almost kind of like they're waiting for the bubble to burst and it doesn't really, it just kind of hangs around. And the resolution for films at the time, you were having a lot of these great spectacle moments. You were having your Darth Vader versus Ben Kenobi fight in 77. You had your superman versus luthor in 78 you know you had your indiana jones against the nazis in 81 you know then now you need something big in 82 so there has to be a villain a a tangible presence where the audience can root against they can root for their hero and root against the villain so i don't think there has been a bigger villain in the star trek universe including the borg bigger than khan in terms of just what Khan means to Star Trek overall. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You know, I mean, there's no one has ever re- yelled Borg really ever. I mean, you know, Picard has yelled a couple times, you know, in first contact, but that scene alone has fired off so many different parodies and influenced so many different, you know, oh. pieces of work. It's they're incalculable. It's uh, it's what are the odds, Spock? <laughs> it's a pop culture icon. There are many things from the Wrath of Khan that have stuck with pop culture that you've seen in so many shows since, and not one from the motion picture. Yeah, but it doesn't it doesn't take away from what the motion picture brings to Star Trek and there's just that, what do you want out of it? Do you want to be able to go on this cerebral journey? I, e. I mean, even in the cage, you had the Talosians that you can kind of like shake your fist at as villains. But Ricardo Montalban's con, even more so than Space Seed, he was just bigger than anything else that Star Trek has put on screen in terms of a villain. Do you know the Klingon proverb that tells us revenge is a dish that is best served cold? And he was perfectly balanced. He was rage incarnate when he needed to be. He was seething when he needed to be. He was obviously a master actor. I mean, that's Ricardo Montalban. Oh, he just brought something completely, yep. right? Uh, he brought the chest. It is real. It's not fake. No matter what Vrenak says, it is real. <laughs> yep. That guy <laughs> and, can do uh, some pushups. Yep. Yeah, he was just a force of nature. And I think that's what people really remember probably the most out of the, t- the, the titular character, Khan, even though trivia here, and I think Ataz would be proud of me for bringing this up. Nicholas Meyer actually titled Star Trek to the undiscovered country as he was editing the movie. And you can hear this in his commentary on the Star Trek Blu-ray, um, the Wrath of Khan Blu-ray. He was editing and because he didn't have any name or clout in the business, the powers that be changed it to the Wrath of Khan. Actually... Uh, Mr. Atos is going to be double. I'm going to get double points than you, Ooh, because you're go. right. He wanted to name it the Undiscovered Country. That didn't fly. 
So there are even posters out there where it was called The Vengeance of Kong. Mm. And then they were going to have Star Wars Revenge of the Sith coming out the mm. year after. And I guess people in the movie industry didn't think that um, the viewers Revenge were intelligent enough to, to, uh, to change. Uh, I mean, to identify Star Trek over Star Wars. Change Vengeance of Khan to Wrath of Khan. And this was before they knew they were going to change Revenge of the, uh, Revenge of the Jedi to Return of the Jedi. So see, see? Um, tell Schmedlap to pour a little bit more Romulan ale on the Atavacron. I think we got this. Yeah, we got this. Yeah, we got this. So Norm, uh, let me hit you hmm. with some, let's take it outside the, um, the actual performance of the movies, I guess, from a storytelling point of view. Let's talk commercial mm-hmm. a little bit. I, um, I wanted to get some numbers and it, it was just interesting to, to kind of look this up to see how the movies stacked against each other so forth and so on. And I think this this kind of plays into a little bit of my point that Star Trek The Motion Picture might have been the catalyst for this for saving the series versus The Wrath of Khan. But I know it isn't always about money. Believe me, I know that. But it's interesting. So Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1979, it, it made uh, $82 million. So three years later, this is just domestic total. Mm-hmm. Worldwide, it made 139 million, and in those dollars back then, there's a big difference. And I've got the um, the updated numbers for today's dollars later. But um, Star Trek: The Wrath of Khan made 78 million dollars, and worldwide made 95 million dollars. So um, hmm. the the Wrath of Khan actually had at its time the largest opening weekend in box office history when it opened that weekend, which was pretty interesting. But it also fell off quite a bit. Um, but what's interesting about the motion picture is today, even today, it still uh, ranks very, very high as far as far as overall movie uh, in, uh, income for for a Star Trek film. Okay, so it um, it actually beat uh, the Voyage Home, whose domestic total was 139 million. Um, the I'm sorry, it was 130 million. The the motion picture in real dollars adjusted for inflation beat it by nine million dollars. So it was. It's still for the original set of movies, adjusted for inflation, um, beat them all, which is which is very telling. So, for whatever reason, and with a higher operating budget too. Yeah, so it made less. It it made less profit. That's that's right. that's the real difference, right? This is from a website called The Numbers, and uh, I looked that up on IMDb too, which was pretty interesting. So. Because the motion picture had to eat the cost of Star Trek Phase Two, uh, and two years of contracts with the actors, keeping them like locked down. Are we making a TV show? Are we making a movie? We're making a TV show. Built a lot of sets, scrapped the sets, all that other stuff. Um, its budget ballooned. At the time, I heard forty million, but according to the um, to the numbers.com, it was thirty five million. So that's a lot of money. Uh, the Wrath of Khan only cost $11 million to make. So mm-hmm. the Wrath of Khan was, like I said, it was a lot more profitable. And that's what had a big part in keeping Star Trek alive, too, I would say. Um, as far as accolades, well, the Rotten Tomatoes score for the motion picture was 47%. Would you care to guess what the Wrath of Khan's was? I will say somewhere in the mid-80s. 88%. So it was a much better received movie. Can't see. 
data doesn't lie. That's why I like looking at numbers. Um, <laughs> and then let's see what else did I pull together here quick from the numbers. So, um, so like I said, Star Trek, the wrath of Khan, $79 million off an $11.2 million budget. So Star Trek, the wrath of Khan was the most profitable of the motion of the original cast and of the TNG movies. Uh, compared okay. to all of them, so mm -hmm. it 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 had the biggest span between what its budget was and what it hauled in. Uh, the motion picture uh, was pretty much the same for adjusted dollars as First Contact uh, when when it finished its run. So a lot of people went to see the motion picture. A lot of people went to see the motion picture in winter time. Uh, we know just from The Force Awakens that running a movie around Christmas time isn't a bad idea. Uh, it didn't have a lot of competition. Uh, from a movie industry piece of it, Academy Awards, there were no Academy Award nominations for The Wrath of Khan. The motion picture got three. Didn't win any, but it got three. One for best score, one for visual mm -hmm. effects, and one for art direction. And um, if I remember visual effects, it lost to Aliens, which was the uh, the other Jerry Goldsmith scored movie in 1979. So... Wow. I think that um, when you when you put all the numbers together, if if you took the phase two out of it, um, it's quite possible that the motion picture could have been the most profitable as well as the largest dollar earner for all the original series movies, and um, nothing nothing trumped it. So, from that alone, just from the money it brought in, from the number of ticket sales too, its ticket sales were also the most of all the. Um, the original series movies, individual ticket sales. One of the big things that um, made Star Trek The Wrath of Khan so popular, I don't know if you knew this, but I do remember this. When I was a kid, uh, 79, 80, 81, 82, that's when videos... Can I guess? What? Go ahead. The Burger King, the Burger King glasses. Yeah, it wasn't the Burger King glasses. <laughs> no, 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 no Burger King or, or McDonald's meal tie in. Tie there was a like Happy that? Meal for the motion picture, and there wasn't one for the Wrath okay. of Khan. But no, <laughs> what the what, an industry breaker for the Wrath of Khan was, uh, you know, back in those days, it cost eighty to a hundred dollars to get a videotape, right? And that's what made video stores so popular. And this was before Blockbuster, so everything was a neighborhood video store, and and, and you had to, you know, you'd, you'd pay whatever it was to, to rent the movie for two days or bring it back, and you'd pay a fee and all this. It was just a different world back then. The Wrath mm -hmm. of Khan was the first commercially available videotape for um, global distribution. So I believe it was twenty four ninety nine, and it was mass marketed. You could buy this in any major retail store. So today, that's, that's the norm. It was the norm 20 years ago. It was not the norm in 82. They were, that was the very first movie. Paramount broke it out with The Wrath of Khan, and it went gangbusters. And that's why I say it is probably the most watched Star Trek film that I have ever seen. I would have to guess, honestly, over 100 times, I would have to guess, because I had it, oh, you know, yeah. and I owned it, and where I couldn't afford to own the motion picture. So... Um, just some fun facts there that, um, you know, might help some of our Babel Conference people to decide whether um, one side of the argument or not. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a great discussion. It's a great debate. Uh, I guess we'll never really know because it is subjective, but 
I just thought I'd put out some facts and figures there. I have to just just follow up on one thing that you just said about the scores because there's one thing I think that we can agree on for both movies. They both they both had fantastic soundtracks. I mean, the opening sequence for the motion picture that's about as iconic of Star Trek as it gets, more than anything else. I mean, that's that was the motion picture soundtrack, and that became the theme for the next generation. So when you hear that dun 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 dun, dun yeah, that's that's about as iconic as it gets for Star Trek. It, there are these certain beats. It's like you're hearing the, the 20th century fanfare in front of a Star Wars film, or the opening blast of a Star Wars film, or the couple of those those two sequential keys before Jaws. These are touchstone moments, and there is really, not in Star Trek, more of a stronger touchstone moment thematically in terms of sound than probably the opening of that movie, because it was just, it was stark. There was black and white on the, theme, on the, uh, on the credit sequence. You just saw the titles, and you just heard that fantastic, well, wait, you heard the overture first, and then it goes into the actual main theme. So Jerry Goldsmith was, he was gold. That was my favorite theme, still is, uh, for movies. And it got watered down when TNG, when it was used for TNG, I thought, because, I, I again, uh, it was in Star Trek V, uh, the motion picture, and then TNG. And TNG was, oh, that's right, Star Trek V. Yeah, they, they did use it again. I agree with you. The, um, the theme for The Wrath of Khan was very, very good. It's actual theme. The music in the middle and the battle sequences, I don't know if you ever listened to the soundtrack of... Um, Battle Beyond the Stars or the soundtrack for Aliens, but it's all the mm-hmm. same music. This was before um, James Horner really came into his own, and, and boy, he evolved as a musician. But his earlier works yes, has. all sounded very similar. But the yeah, actual. Yeah, we had this kind of. Yeah. It's, yeah, it was very staccato. Was that dun 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 dun? It's dun, almost dun, identical. Dun, you know, like, yeah. all, if you listen yeah. to Battle Beyond the Stars, you're going to go, oh, okay, it's the same one. Yeah. The actual theme for Star Trek 2 and Star Trek 3, because he did both, were very unique and very, very well done. I, I, I had um, the soundtracks for, for all the Star Trek movies uh, back in the day. And um, I've got, I've got uh, some music that we'll play for the, for, for the audience to do, to be you know, in between all this from both, because they are just brilliant scores overall. You know, that's something that I would love for Brendan Shamatala to handle on melodic treks. Just maybe just do a little bit of um you know of a special show just on all of the themes in Star Trek and what they mean and how they emotionally impact and tie into how the audience just connects with the movie because again there's you're you're looking at these two completely different flavors between how all of the aesthetics from the motion picture have this certain flavor versus the flavor in the Wrath of Khan, and everything is just so stylistically different. They're both equally awesome in their own rights. It's just that I don't think that there's there's no way to really settle what we're trying to settle here because there are so many good points for both parts of this equation. And if they went with the overall thematical look and feel and theme of the motion picture into the second film, would it have continued? We don't know because they didn't. So we know that it did succeed with all the changes they made and the direction that they took in the Wrath of Khan. Was it because that they took the risk and killed Spock in the Wrath of Khan, making it just this, this milestone in the history of Star Trek? That was probably one of the greatest milestones in the history of Star Trek, probably. 
But we don't know that either because that didn't take on a natural resolution. They used it as a springboard for future storytelling. So we don't know if that would have changed anything. But what we do know is this. We do know that they're both fantastic movies. Everyone should watch them, appreciate them for what you can appreciate them for, and agree with me. So that's really it. Thanks, Ken. Bye. So. Don't forget who edits this thing. That's <laughs> way to think, Ken. You want to wrap this up? Sure. So first of all, okay. it, this was a, a really great discussion. I enjoyed... You, you made me think a lot, Norm. You asked some very, very good questions, and I think you brought some some wonderful points to the discussion. As, as I think as, as a crew, we, all, we, we do that well, uh, the three of us. But I, I really enjoyed this because I was able to finally discuss my other passion, right? You, you gave me the opportunity to talk about the balance of terror and and really play with that and in this one i got to really talk a lot about uh, the motion picture which i think is very deserving of 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 a lot of accolades and also get to really um pick your brain about your favorite movie of all time, which is one of my favorite movies as well. So when you talk about some things that you really love and enjoy, how can you go wrong? And when you're doing it with a good friend, it makes it even better. So I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm going to pour myself a really stiff glass of Romulan ale and toast that sentiment, Ken. So thank you for that. And, you know, we're going to have to follow this up with another show or even like a smaller show and just talk about the finer points of the director's cut versus the director's cut. Absolutely. Because, because both director's cut added a lot to both movies. Exactly. So we're going to probably have to sneak that one in here. Or maybe when Ataz is uh, come back through the Atavicron, we'll have him back on here and he can he can like fill in for the director's cut portion of, of the, that segment. And uh, we can't wait to have him back. So. It's been an amazing conversation. And Ken, I'm so glad that you brought this up and I'm glad that you were able to talk about your passion. That's what we do here at Trek FM with all of our shows, not just here on Standard Orbit. But if you'd like to listen to what we've been talking about this week across the network, here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere this past week. Previously on Trek.FM, Women at Warp. The only way that she can get through the trauma is remembering what her real story is, and that's getting this puppy home and taking care of it. I wish that Captain Jeremy Nelson said, let's get this puppy home. <laughs> Melodic Treks. Do you know what lesson I got from this? What? Don't rely on technology to solve all of your problems. What does that mean? It means don't play on your iPad all the time. That's what my teacher told me. Your teacher's very smart. Saturday Morning Trek. Dorothy had a little bit of a fit with the uh, animators. They had said over and over again, there is no moon in the Vulcan sky. I think it was like the first episode that aired of the original series when they mentioned this. Because Uhura walks up to Spock and she's like, tell me I'm beautiful. Tell me that I would look good in your moon. And he's like, Vulcan has no moon. I'm not surprised. <laughs> Continuing mission. So why don't you give me a little bit of a thumbnail of what Starship Grissom is. First, it's a uh, Star Trek fan film. It's written by teachers and designed so teachers and educators can download it and use it in their classrooms. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So if you'd like to find all the other shows here on Trek.fm, you can find us all over the interwebs and on certain podcasting 
distribution sites like iTunes, like TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website here at Trek FM and grab the RSS link there as well. If you're an Apple user, please hit that subscribe button. That makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes and helps us increase our visibility for new listeners. Also, ratings and star reviews help us increase that invisibility. So please, if you like what you hear here on Standard Orbit or on any of those shows on Trek FM, please feel free to leave us a rating. Let us know how you feel and let us know how we can improve the show and deliver the kind of Star Trek content that you would like to hear on a weekly basis and on a monthly basis. So that's another way that you can help us out. And Ken, there's another very special way that all the listeners and supporters can help us out here on Trek FM. And I'd like for you to talk a little bit about that before we close out the show. Yes, sir. So we employ Patreon as our method of having our fans support the network. Patreon is a listener-supported way of ensuring that we're able to bring you commercial-free podcasts across the entire network. So that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek FM allows you to contribute to us as a network, not Norm and I in particular, because Norm and I in particular (laughs) donate a lot of money through Patreon, and we are big contributors through Patreon, so we do practice what we preach, folks. But if you can spare, any amount would be appreciated. We're, We're not snobbish here, but we do have some incentives. So if you can donate $15 a month, that would allow you to have a seat on the Patrons Roundtable. This is hosted by uh, Aaron Harvey now with uh, Will Wynn uh, going back and forth. And this uh, this allows you to have a voice and to actually participate on a podcast and tell us how you feel about Star Trek or a specific topic that they want to bring up. And for $25 a month, you're able to receive associate producer credit on the show that you enjoy the most. So please help us out. Help us to continue bringing you all this different content. And, you know, that's one thing that I will say about Christopher Jones and the network. They are always looking to improve the quality and to bring you new and exciting shows. And what's been added in the last six months has been incredible. So help us keep this journey going and contribute today. Thank you very much for your support. Thank you, Ken. And thank you always to our associate producers for this show who have come to us through the Patreon service. And those associate producers are Renee Roberts and Richard Rutledge. You can find them on Twitter at MRES underscore 1701 for Renee. And for Richard, you can find him at RUT8972. You can also support us in a really fun way if you go to redbubble.com, type Trek FM to the search field, and take a look at all of the offerings that we have there for you. We have t-shirts, we have iPhone covers, we have decals, we have coffee mugs, all designed from our very own, by our very own, very talented Aaron Harvey, who's the art director here at Trek FM. He's a fantastic designer and We are proud to have him, and we are proud to wear what he designs for us. So thank you so much, Aaron, for all your talent. Please visit all of his designs at rubbable.com and type Trek FM in the search field. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trek.fm slash contact. Look in the sidebar on the show page. You can go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm and leave us a voice message there. You can also contact us through Twitter at trek.fm. 
Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm and the Babel Conference. Ken, can you tell all of our listeners how special the Babel Conference is for all of us here on the network? Sure, the Babel Conference, it is very special because it's our way of communicating with you offline and getting very good details about what's working for our shows and just to be able to have great discussion groups. The thing about the Babel Conference is that we try to keep it very professional. We do not mind people having different opinions at all, but we just want people people to be respectful. And that's the tone that's set in the Babel Conference, which makes us very unique on Facebook. So please join us. All you have to do is dial in on B-A-B-E-L conference. Just put that in the search part of Facebook. Uh, It's members only, but you just make the request and Norm and some other administrators will let you in. And come in and enjoy the community. It's it's a wonderful community. And I think that um, it's just miles and miles above other Facebook group sites. And we look forward to reading your comments on our shows there and participating in conversations with you back and forth. So please, 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 as soon as you can, get in there and give us some uh, insight as to what you think of today's show as well. Absolutely. And thank you, Ken, for that. And how can our listeners get in touch with you across the network so that they can discuss all of these fantastic topics with you. <laughs> Through the aforementioned Babel Conference. So that's that's mm-hmm. where I that's where I live and play. I don't have a Twitter account. I'm, I'm not the most technically adept person in the world. That's why Jeff is missing, and we're trying to find Mr. Ataz. So please, uh, uh, dial in, uh, IM me anytime uh, from, from the Babel Conference, especially if you have some questions that you'd like to ask Mr. Ataz and see if we could stump him. And, uh, and feel free to, to friend me anytime. I, I love increasing the network and hearing from you and just getting involved with these conversations. How about you, Norm? Well, you can find me here on the network. You can find me on Facebook. I spend a lot of time on the Babel Conference because I love being able to interact with all of our listeners. And you can find me on Twitter at Starfighter1701. And I am an executive producer here on the network. And like you said before, Ken... I am a supporter through Patreon.com. And even though he's not here, I want to give Jeff a little bit of a shout out here. If you'd like to get in touch with Jeff, who is Mr. Ataz, and you don't have access to an Atavacron, or once Schmedlap dries out uh, the transwarp beacon between the Wave Rider and his Atavacron, you can find Jeff on the Babel Conference. He's co-host here with us on Standard Orbit. He also can be found at Twitter at Harlander. And you can find him on his webpage which is also called The Grand Unified Theory of Star Trek at trekopedia.com. And you can find him on bandwidthcomics.com. Search Facebook for Bandwidth Comics and you can find Jeff's fantastic work there. So thanks everyone for listening and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. <laughs>